Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. So today I'm going to talk about a topic that I had a lot of trouble with when I was first doing Java, and that's benchmarking, in particular micro benchmarking. And the reason it was a lot of trouble is because benchmarking is so easy and generally fun. There are a lot of people who are just trying to come up and say, my Java is faster than your C or vice versa. And pretty much they got it wrong. Without exception, every micro benchmark I've ever seen has had serious flaws unless I've had a hand directly in correcting it. Where serious means that the score of the micro benchmark is unrelated to the intended thing to be measured or that the error bars exceed the measured values generally by you know, a huge amount. People were getting numbers that were essentially random, uh, you know, random on a scale from zero to infinity. So I want to split out micro benchmarks from macro benchmarks, <coughs> where micro benchmarks are generally things you write yourself. You're attempting to discover some narrow targeted fact, um, generally a tight timed loop around some work, and they're going to report iterations a second, or allocations a second, or divisions a second, or foobar operations a second, or whatever it's going to be, you know, DB connections a second. Um, and you maybe you're comparing a couple different techniques to solve, or, or you're trying to see what's the best way to approach some particular problem. Whereas macro benchmarks tend to be um, something that's looking at a more realistic workload, a larger application, and longer running web servers, DB caching issues, portal apps. Um, things on the order of you know spec JBB and spec JAP server XML mark and the like. Things are looking like something, some serious problems getting solved. So I'll briefly mention a couple older micro benchmarks only because they lead into a common set of problems. So the most obvious one of these was the old caffeine mark from the spec JVM 98 set, um, where there's just a lot of dead loops. Um, same with Psi mark too. Um, most of the focus tests were essentially dead and led to infinite speedups. Um, so let's talk about what I mean by dead loop and infinite speedup, and what is the what's the issue here? Well, suppose I wanted to ask the question, you know, how fast can I divide by ten? Turns out that uh, division by constant can be optimized. The JVM's known to do division by ten optimization because particular people divide by ten every time they convert um, any kind of an internal binary format to a string format. So the common thing to do is say, hey, call system.currenttimeMillies and scroll it away in a variable. And then you say for i equals 0 to n, where n is a very large number, you know, x equals i divided by 10. Then you call system.currenttimeMillies again, subtract the 2, and you have the time it takes to run in or in iterations of a division. Maybe you divide the 2 in order to get operations per second or divisions a second or seconds per division or whatever you want to do. So that's a great sounding technique. And here's what really happens. You interpret this loop for a while because everything in Java starts out in life interpreted. And let's say it takes you about 10 milliseconds to interpret. Um, it varies by your loop, but there's some short time you interpret. Then after a while, the, the JVM decides that your code is hot. So it needs to be compiled. So it kicks the JIT in. And the JIT looks at the code and says, oh, you're dividing i by 10, but you're not doing anything with the result. So that result is dead. So I can throw it away. So he does. Well, then the whole loop is dead. So he throws the whole loop away. And then he generates code that says, do nothing for the remaining iterations, however many are left to be done, and then call the rest of, you know, the optimized version of the rest of the stuff, which is like call system.currenttimeMillies and take the difference and report a result. So that all takes another 10 milliseconds. Um, but then the remaining, you know, iterations are run instantly now. Um, and then you print a result. So what happens here is that the time to run is 10 milliseconds to interpret, 10 milliseconds to JIT, and that's it, you're done, you print a number. But your score 
is independent of n. It's however, you know, it, it's, it's 20 milliseconds divided by n iterations. So as you change n, your score goes up or down. It's essentially a random number, and you can make it as large as you like by making n as large as you like. And I have totally seen benchmarks do this, where the score reported back is either infinite or nan or negative, but sometimes they're just very large, and then they get rolled into other interesting benchmark numbers where, for instance, you get a geometric mean, um, and then that kind of takes the very large number and disappears it into a blended result number, which now becomes you know, pretty junkified. Um, a little, a little sidetrack here on SciMark 2 and the Monte Carlo benchmark. Turns out this benchmark, 80% of the time was spent in the synchronized keyword for random.next. Now this was back in the day when random.next, um, well, it was synchronized, but synchronizing was done with, um, you know, a, 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 the, the, the nice, you know, bacon bits, the nice uh, locking bits in the header, but hadn't been optimized quite as far as it ha is today. Um, in this case, though, the IBM came through and replaced the call to synchronize random so they changed the semantics of the code to do an, an intrinsic atomic compare and swap. So what's an atomic compare and swap? It's the x86 instruction that can do something atomically. And, and it's the only instruction that does it atomically, and you must use it for every locking. So a typical locking scenario has a compare and swap, and if it works, you got the lock. And when you unlock, you also have to compare and swap. So synchronizing typically requires two compare and swaps, um, assuming there's no contention. So I was ordered to also spam random.next by putting a single compare and swap instead of two. Um, and Doug Lee popped up and said, hey, wait a second, why don't we just make a cast from Java? Um, and so I did, and that turned into sun.misc.atomic.long, which then got used by a bunch of different people making interesting library calls where they wanted to do things were on these new fancy multiprocessors that were just coming out, you know, 20 years ago. And that pretty rapidly got replaced by unsafe.compareAndSwap of a cleanup of a whole lot of unsafe operations, things that let you break the Java safety model, but they exposed low-level primitives like compare and swap that you absolutely had to have on any multi-core machine. Um, and eventually, of course, you have Jobling Atomic now, although unsafe and compare and swap does something that Jobling Atomic does not and can do it at a lower cost. So I'll claim there's still a useful place for unsafe.compare and swap. So what, what, is the, what, is the, what is the takeaway here? Um, the, the micro benchmarks all need a warm-up period. Um, you have to start with the, the interpreting for a while. But when you get jitted, you typically get 10x faster or infinitely faster if you've wrote, written a broken micro benchmark. In the case of IBM using CAS, it was the JIT that kicked in and said, oh, look, I'm looking at random.next. I can do it, and, and the uses of it were all properly done correctly, then I can do it with a single compare and swap instead of the default implementation, which would be some sort of inline jitted version of a synchronized call, which involved a lock and an unlock. Um, so, so when you're trying to write a microbenchmark, you need to be aware that it's going to take a while for the, the JIT to kick in. In Hotspot, that's 10,000 iterations, a number that came up 20 years ago when no one knew what the hell to pick for any of these things, and it turned out to be pretty good in practice. But then the JIT still has to compile code before the jitted code gets to run in. So it helps to have some warm-up runs, some trial runs to warm-up, and you can either keep testing the runtime over your hot loop, 
until the runtime stabilizes and you think the jitting's done. Or you can turn on a flag like dash, dash xx colon plus print compilation and wait until you see that <clears throat> the compiler has, has slowed down and it's not jitting so much anymore. Um, one of the, the things to think about when you're looking at these is that a lot of the popular uh, competitions of you know my my compiler versus yours, um, you know C versus Java, um, have these benchmarks where the whole benchmark will run in just a few milliseconds. And while there are some domains which you need a you know millisecond start from scratch and you're done, um, they're pretty far and uh, in between. So you know I'll claim that that benchmark by itself isn't doing anything useful in a few milliseconds. But if you're asking the question, is Java faster than C? Well, if you need an answer in a millisecond from scratch, maybe the answer is yes. But if you have a, a, a server application that's running for days and days and days, or even minutes, um, steady state throughput wins the day. And here, you know, steady state throughput, Java will totally jit and kick it. And once the jit kicks in, it will be very competitive with C. Um, and I'll claim actually for many, many um, Java programs, you know, the jitting's often done within 10 seconds or so. It, it's pretty fast by the time the jits, you know, comes up and does its thing and gets out of the way. As you change phases in the program or visit new code, jitting has to happen again. But any sort of condensed small program that does something specific in target, the jitting's all over with in a few seconds. Okay, here is another way in which Java differs from uh, static compilers like C uh, in, in terms of how the performance shows up. And this is the compile plan. The C compilers will make inlining decisions based on what they see in the code directly, but without any profiling data. Whereas the jitting will both look at the code, they'll also look at profiling. And profiling data will actually vary from time to time for lots of reasons. Um, if you're looking at anything involving network traffic, when network packets arrive will change when code executes. And that will totally change counters of what's hot when and how fast and how soon. And if you're doing anything multi-threading, you always get thread interleavings and interactions of various kinds. And in the end, the, the JIT typically sees different profile data from run to run. With different profile and data in hand, it will make slightly different inlining decisions. And for big applications, these tend to all come out in the wash. Um, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, you know, pick one from this column, one from that, you know, potato, potato. It's all about the same. But for microbenchmarks, the inlining decisions tend to be very fragile in terms of performance. You either get it right or you get it wrong on a single inlining call, which might vary very slightly. And here's an example. Suppose I have a, a method A that has a for loop calling B, and then B has a for loop calling C, and C does some work. Now, the code for A is a little more complicated than what I just said, and the trip counter on the B loop has this variation over time, where in the beginning, B trips a lot, but doesn't call C very often. And over time, it reverses, where B is called a few times and C is called a lot. During the, the warm-up phase, or when the JIT gets to called and he's looking at the profiling data, sometimes he sees that B is uh, being called a lot from A, and sometimes he sees that C is being called a lot from B. So in one case, he might inline, you know, A will, function A will inline B, but then have B call C. And in another case, you might have A calling B and then B inline C. And the difference is who gets to take advantage of the inlining. If the innermost loop is the one that got inlined into, that one typically has the largest gains to be had um, from, from the JIT by the inlining. 
And the reason, you know, the first guy, A, inlines B, but didn't inline C is because the call to C wasn't hot enough to be deserved getting inlined. So you get up with two different inlining patterns that might vary based on something as subtle as when the JIT thread got kicked in. You know, the outer loop calls and the inner loop calls, and somebody hits the 10,000 mark and the JIT gets called, but the JIT's in a separate thread. And so the OS already is just kicked in and is deciding when he's going to let the JIT thread run. And he may choose a time where the profiling has changed enough that one or the other of the inlining decisions show up. Once the inlining decision is done, that code got baked in. And then your performance numbers are all based on which inlining decision got happened there. And you might see 20, 40% difference in speed based on that. And what the heck do you do about a 40% difference in speed? Well, what you just get hit with here was something that is a statistical pattern. Sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. And how do you deal with statistics? You do it by doing repeated runs, enough runs that you get statistically relevant results. Maybe you require 30 runs, and I'm not talking about 30 loops of your, of your innermost or your time benchmarky thing. I'm talking about 30 launches of the JVM. You have to launch the JVM enough times that the inlining decisions are getting made the, the one way or another, or you'll see the bimodal distribution and you'll understand that you're getting this problem. If you just do it once, you'll get a number, but the guy across the street or on the other side of that web page you just put a, you know, published a result on might get a completely different answer because he got a different inlining pattern and, you know, you, you'll look bad based on that. Okay, so now I'm going to switch again. Here's another uh, uh, inlining fail mode thing that happens a lot to JVMs. So it's a common case where somebody says, I want to compare two different implementations. I want to look at object allocation pool versus garbage collection. I want to look at you know this version of database versus that version. I'm looking at a hash map versus a big array. I'm looking at this or that. Two different implementations of something. And so they write a hot loop. And the hot loop says for I equals one in, call the first benchmarking thing and time it and get the foobars a second. Then call the second benchmarking thing and time it and get the foobars a second. And because you end up doing a lot of screwing around and foo bars a second and warm up this and that, you put it all in a testing cycle that says, you know, some test function, it takes an object, which is an abstract, you know, single abstract method object and has the hot thing you want to go time on. So when the compiler gets handed this kind of code and he's busy compiling it, he'll see in the first time it gets called only one target for the virtual call in the inner loop. That is, it'll be whatever thing you're benchmarking first. And because it's a single thing that's getting called, and the other guy's probably not even loaded, the compiler totally can inline. If the other guy's loaded but not executed, he'll do a guarded inlining. But if it's not even loaded, he'll just inline the sucker directly. With the sucker inline directly, he can then do all kinds of optimizations. Maybe discover the code's all dead and throw it all away. Or do all kinds of fun loop invariant hoisting games where he can look at you know repeated loads and stores that don't necessarily apply in the general case. And you get a number out that looks really good. But when you put the second guy in, the compiler now realizes that in the hot inner loop, there's a virtual call that goes to multiple targets. He has to reject. So the second loop gets to get blown out in the middle of running by seeing that it's got the wrong code. It has to do uh, interpret it for a while while new code gets jetted. And then the new guy doesn't get the fancy guarded inlining because there are multiple targets. He gets a single target. I mean, so he gets a single, he gets multiple targets. He gets a virtual call, a real live virtual call. 
Well, a virtual call might do anything from the JIT's point of view, so the compiler doesn't do any optimizations on it at all. So the target guy got jitted, but there's no loop invariant code motion going on. There's no dead code elimination that's you know dead out of the loop. There's none of that kind of stuff happening. So the second guy gets a much worse kind of optimization pattern, and he'll report a more realistic but worse answer. And this all still sounds good because you just run it, you get a you get a number for the first guy, and you get a number for the second guy, and it makes sense. And okay, it's what I wanted or whatever. But if you reverse the order and call the second guy first, and they then reverse performances, this is what you're getting hit with. Guarded inline or other fancy optimization on the first guy, and the second guy is not getting the optimization. And it's all about who got called first. Okay, so what do you do about that? In your warm-up code, when you're calling your benchmark harness, you call it with all the different kinds of objects that you're going to have, you're going to eventually want to test. So the hot benchmark code starts out live with a V call, a megamorphic V call in the inner loop, and doesn't do any of the fancy optimizations because the thing, the object pooling or the faster square root or database benchmark, whatever thing you're trying to test, probably doesn't get to do that either. <coughs> um, so the, the last piece of, of uh, warnings I have here is simply, you know, it, it's garbage collection. It's either avoid it or embrace it. Either don't do any allocation at all, or maybe a little trivial setup, um, or else use verbose GC and confirm that you hit steady state. And here, if you're going to embrace GC, you have to again do statistics, not just an average, and, and you need to look at your standard deviation and not toss your outliers because it is commonly the case that big applications leak. And they might leak in bad places, like on the, on the hash table linked list, if you're using the same, you know, uh, uh, different objects that, that hash to the same key constantly. And you get leaks, and the leaks might make a hash table get infinitely more slower over time. Or the leaks could just be old gen objects, and your GC just gets slower and slower and slower and slower. And you need to be aware of that. So if you if you have a large application and you, you know you suspect it leaks and you're trying to benchmark throughput, be aware that your throughput will decrease over time as you know creeping GC behavior catches up with you more and more and more. Um, synchronization. Um, I have had people try to do testing of single-threaded programs and the locking costs and so on. But let me just tell you what locking costs are because they're they're very bimodal here. A never contended lock is very, very cheap. Um, these days, on a modern x86, you'll still do a CAS, it'll hit in your L2, and come back in a handful of clock cycles. Um, if bias locking ever gets turned on, and maybe it's on now, it might even go to zero. Um, whereas a very slightly contended lock, I mean very slightly, 0.0001 times you attempt the lock, it got contention, you'll try a, um, you'll try a spin loop for a little while. And if that works, you get the lock after spin loop. These kind of locks cost maybe 4x more than a never contended, so really, really, really cheap versus four times really, really, really cheap is still pretty damn cheap. Or you've got sort of serious contention, and now the lock immediately runs into the, into the runtime system and makes a call to the OS to go grab an OS lock. And now you have both the real contention, so Ambo's law kicks in, plus lots and lots of OS overhead. And in these kind of cases, um, you know, if you detect this, you're looking for performance, you know, go to go grab Java Util Concurrent. Um, might have a replacement algorithm that works better. But if you're looking at, you know, the overhead of locking, a not contended lock is essentially free. And if you're worried about a data race that might be buggy, you can throw in a not contended lock 
um, sort of freely in, in an effort to make it a actually very lightly contended lock to break a synchronization uh, bug um, with, you know, pretty fearlessly. It's not going to really hurt you. Okay, let me summarize this. Um, you need realistic runtimes. Um, Sub-millisecond runtime for a benchmark is not going to let a JIT have a chance to kick in. You need a warm-up loop so that JIT has a chance. You need to look at the output of either the timing of the warm-up loops or of the you know, plus print compilation flag to see that jitting's over with. You need to launch your JVM several times in a row. And, and you know, this is statistics time. You're looking for variations in results and confirming there are none, which is, you know, it happens and it's good. But you have to look because maybe there are variations and you need to know what they are. Um, be aware of the whole dead loop syndrome, which turns into sort of a dial score where you can get a bigger and bigger score by having large and larger trip count because the actual runtime is fixed in time. There's the first run fast, second run slow syndrome when comparing multiple implementations. And there, you know, call out to them all uh, interleaving version A, version B, version A, version B, version A, version B, in order to break the JIT from trying to optimize it's all only A and never any Bs, right? And then GC, completely avoid it or embrace it and then look for it statistically significantly. And that's, you know, the micro benchmark stuff. I have a, a, a few macro benchmarks things I'll throw out. Um, there, there's a fun history of SpecDB 2000. I'm going to roll through real quick here. Um, it was this benchmark where Sun and IBM had this competition for middleware, and JDB 2000 looked like the best possible you know middleware benchmark at that time. Um, turns out that the benchmark, in order to make it acceptable to all the vendors didn't do any I.O. and didn't have any database, which is not typical of middleware. Um, but it did do a very high allocation rate of objects. And then what was the, the optimal performance? Well, optimal performance came around when you didn't need to do any old gen in the timed window, old gen GC cycles in the timed window. So you had to not run out of your young gen GC in the, you know, in the timing window. And then you could take a GC cycle, not in the timing window, clean up all the young gen objects, it all died, get it all back, and go again. So this drove tons of specialized GC behaviors and flags across a bunch of vendors, not just IBM and Sun. And, you know, dash XX colon plus aggressive optimizations was born. It turned on a lot of funny flags that were really only helpful for SpecJDB in the beginning, and later became synonymous with the more risky flags that people were experimenting with. Um, but at the time, you know, IBM then came out with a 64-bit VM and a 12-gigabyte heap in an era when everyone had only 4 gigs of RAM on a machine and 3.5-gig max heaps. And it was a huge step forward for JVMs, and it forced Sun to make a 64-bit VM. And it was, you know, it was a sort of a highly specialized, uh, uh, highly targeted VM I mean, benchmark. Eventually, um, JVB 2005 came out. But, uh, you know, Azul Systems ran a, you know, a, a near thousand core machine on it um, with a 350 gigabyte heap allocating 20 gigs a second for three and a half days and no old Gen GC. So I would call that benchmark fairly darn well busted, although it did drive a lot of goodness in terms of getting 64-bit JVMs out there. So really, if you're looking for big benchmark stuff, um, things to look out for are... are um, unrealistic treatment of GC and unrealistic load generation. These are sort of the two most popular ones I see out there. Unrealistic treatment of GC is the one where if you're looking for steady state throughput performance, 
um, or or you're looking for uh, you know best latency uh, instant reaction times, you need to be aware of GC and look for it and deal with it. Um, and in particular, people frequently when testing don't put the right kinds of load on a system to stress it in a way that's realistic. They either put a very simple load or very repetitive load, and the JIT and the VM and the GC all optimize for the very repetitive load, but the actual load has a lot more variation to it and a lot more variation in spikes and, and, and load uh, uh, put on the server, and therefore the real bit, the real JVM running the real load sees a lot more uh, uh, GC issues than the lab test things do. And another one is simply not getting enough uh, bottlenecks getting load to the server or the server getting to like the database. And so it looks like the server is either doing very, very well, it's all idle, but, the, but it's completely bottlenecked, either getting load or getting it answers back from other places. Um, uh, so I guess I'll, I'll summarize real quickly here. You know, micro benchmarks are easy to write, but hard to get right. It's easy to get fooled, and they won't tell you much about macro code. It is useful to learn things about how the VM's written or what it will and will not do when you're sort of writing code on a daily basis. But you know, just be aware that there are a lot of pitfalls here. Make sure you have warm up in the ones to tens of seconds range. Make sure you apply some statistics and average lots of runs, looking for variations in a compile plan. Call out to all your different targets in your hot loops so you don't get that kind of optimization. And be wary of you know the dead code turning into super results. And I guess just you know just put micro trust in a micro benchmark. And and thanks and good luck in all your micro benchmarking. This is Cliff Click. Bye bye.